comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 24, and can be found on page 209 of most of your pew Bibles. First Samuel, chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went to the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers, evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. May God bless the reading of his word. So as our worship as our worship set celebrated, and as the presider prayed, this is Palm Sunday. Now, the text we read had nothing to do with Palm Sunday. Well, there's a little bit of a connection. 
you know, think about Palm Sunday and how we typically understand it and celebrate it. Right? We, we, we worship Christ for that's the week, that's the day he came into Jerusalem and was celebrated by the people as king. It leads up to the, introduces Holy Week, which ends, of course, with Jesus' death on a cross for our sin and then his resurrection on Easter Sunday. So we typically acknowledge Palm Sunday as a spiritual occasion, as a time when Jesus came to die for our sins, to give us eternal life with God. That's not how they understood it when he walked into the city that day. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The original audience understood it as a political occasion, more than a spiritual one, or as a political occasion with spiritual overtones, spiritual implications, spiritual ramifications. It was predominantly, first and foremost, it was a political occasion and then became a spiritual occasion. At the time, Israel was an occupied country. A Jerusalem, its capital, where its temple was located, was an occupied city. This is the, the place, the temple, the city, the nation. This is the place where God dwelt among his people, much as in Eden of old. And yet, it's not run by Jews, God's people. There's these hated Gentile Romans. They're not circumcised. They worship idols. They eat unclean food. They're despicable people. And sometimes they try to assault the temple. Jews have died to defend this temple from these Romans. So it's very political. And as Jesus rode in on the donkey, he rode in as a king in victory. And they laid down the palm branches before him because they were laying out the path for the king to ride on. And then he's rode into the city what their hope was. Reminds us of 1 Samuel chapter 7. Remember when Samuel took over as the prophet of God and the Philistines attacked. And Samuel did not even have to raise an army or fight with swords. The Philistines attacked Israel, and Samuel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord thundered and scared the Philistine army, and they fled. And Israel won a great victory. Samuel won a great victory without losing a man, without fighting a battle. And so Jesus walks into the city, rides into the city on this donkey. It was very much a political occasion and then spiritual ramifications. What Israel had hoped when they acclaimed him was that God would intervene, cast out these hated moments, and finally establish his reign over Israel, and then through Israel, his reign over all the world. It was a political occasion with spiritual ramifications. So today, we're going to continue in our series of 1 Samuel, which is again about politics. Now, we'll look next week, we will celebrate, we'll break from the series to celebrate Easter next week. But the point I want to make in introduction is, again, 
The Bible doesn't buy into this modern distinction between politics and spirituality. The two are interwoven. They can't just be cut asunder and, and okay, this is our political lives, this is our spiritual lives. Now, for those of you who don't come here regularly or new for the first time, what we're doing now is we're preaching an overview of the entire Old Testament from beginning to end in big chunks so we can follow the flow of the narrative rather than focusing on the details of an individual chapter. What's the flow of the whole narrative, the flow of the whole story? And right now we're in 1 Samuel. We've got 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings and 2 Kings and, and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles to come. Now, 1 Samuel may throw you off because Samuel was a prophet. But 1 Samuel is not about prophecy. It's not really much about the prophet. It only introduces Samuel because Samuel's a prophet. Now, the prophet is going to appoint the king. And really, 1 Samuel is all about kings. And 2 Samuel is all about kings. And 1 Kings is all about kings. And 2 Kings is all about kings. And 1 Chronicles is all about kings. And 2 Chronicles is all about kings. Some of the same kings. 1 and 2 Chronicles repeats. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. But there's a whole lot of politics that's going to come out over the next few weeks. So if you're not regularly attending here, let me tell you this. We are not a political church. We might be able to be, if we were inclined to be. Little footnote. If Caucasian churches go political, they get investigated. If African American churches go political, they, they get, you know, that's okay. I don't know what happens to Asian American churches if we go political. Whether we get investigated or whether we're left alone with our own stuff. But, but we're not a political church. It's just the point is, and if that offended you, that racial characterization, I hope it didn't. But anyway, I read it on the internet. It must be true. Uh, I, uh, we're only talking politics is because it's really hard to make First Samuel be about my private spiritual life. It's not. It's about the kings of Israel. And it's basic application. We can, we can get some application about my private spiritual life from 1 Samuel, but its basic application is about politics. And that's where we start, because our lives are integrated. God is part of our lives, our political lives, our civil lives, as well as our private lives and our religious lives. God wants to be part of all of it. And God invites us to be involved in his world and all of it. So really today, you could say the closest parallel to today's text was probably the being in the, you know, for Americans, is probably being in the South during the Civil War. The closest contemporary parallel, maybe, maybe you remember, some of you are old enough to remember the impeachment of Bill Clinton and the threatened impeachment of Richard Nixon, a few of you might remember. Maybe those are the closest contemporary parallels to those kind of circumstances. But politics is part of our world. Even if it's not part of our daily life, it's part of our experience. So what we want to do is look at this text. And what does it tell us about their politics in its own time? And then ask, how does it apply today, including to politics, but not exclusively, but to politics today? Now, basically, what we're going to be looking at today is we... Um, 
Terry read one chapter from 1 Samuel. We're going to look at a whole stretch, chapter, uh, 16 chapters of Samuel. So we're not going to look in the detail. We're going to look at the whole stretch of it. What's the point of it? That's the question. What's the point of these 16 chapters of 1 Samuel? Now, if you want to look at the detail, look at the devotionals during the week that are on the website that I've given you the address for in your bulletin. If I get them written in time, they'll be up. They will be up at any point, late or, or on time. We'll have to see. But what we want to find is, what's the point of this section of 1 Samuel? And then how does it apply to our lives? Let's situate it. Where were we last week and the week before? What we're looking at today is the third section of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel starts with, right, easy, right? Samuel. Samuel becomes a prophet. The thing is, he wasn't supposed to be the prophet. Eli's children were supposed to be the prophet. But Eli's children were corrupt, so God killed them, killed Eli too, and then made Samuel the prophet. Now, Samuel's in there only for functional ends. Samuel is a prophet, but this is not about prophecy. This is about politics. Samuel's only in there so that he can introduce the monarchy and the first king, Saul. And so, last scripture passage we looked at was about Saul as king. How he became king and what he was like as king. And then today's passage is about David becoming king. Now, there's three problems with David becoming king. Uh, The first problem is this. Monarchy is hereditary. So when one king dies, who becomes the next king? His senior living heir. But David was no relationship to Saul. Jonathan should have been king. But somehow David becomes king. And this is looking suspicious that maybe David had dethroned Saul and his line. A second problem is that Saul tries to kill David before David becomes king. Now, how is that for court intrigue? The current king sees some young aide looking ambitious and tries to kill him. So it looks, when David becomes king after Saul dies, it looks like David's killed him, or had him killed. And then you can look in their earlier relationship and see that Saul already tried to kill David several times, which really makes David look suspect. And the third problem is that when when Saul was trying to kill David, eventually David said he can't risk his life anymore, so he ran away. And then he went and lived with the Philistines. Now the Philistines were enemies of Israel. So now David looks like he's complicit with the enemy. And the Philistines were the people who killed Saul. So David's situation looks really suspicious. This guy looks like a traitor. He was with the Philistines. And they killed Saul. He looks like a traitor. He could become king only because Saul died. And all of Saul's family was wiped out. How convenient. Saul himself had a hint of what was coming. And he tried to kill David. David looks really suspect. And so first Samuel, the narrator, spends 16 chapters 
I mean, let's face it. We read it. It's not our time. It's not our king. We, we find this a little bit boring when we read it. But, but certainly it was urgent for them. Sixteen chapters of the Bible are devoted to defending David. Oh, and it goes on. But at least 16 chapters of the Bible, the 16 we survey today, are devoted to defending David, that he's not a traitor. He's not an insurrectionist. He didn't assassinate Saul or Saul's children. He didn't commit regicide. Why does this matter so much? You know, we know David's not, you know, we know more of the story. They don't know the story yet. If they're reading the first time for the Bible, you don't know the story yet. We know the story about David. We know that David turns out to be not such a nice guy. Right? David has an affair with the wife of one of his generals. He has that general killed to cover the affair when she gets pregnant. David's a pretty dubious sort of fellow. Why does First Samuel spend 16 chapters defending David? And what does this have to do with all the other stuff we've been talking about from the Old Testament? You know, God made three promises. You know, there was Eden, and, and they lost the relationship with God, and they lost all the benefits of Eden. And God made three promises to Abraham about uh, descendants and land and, and blessings to the nations. And now, now we take a detour. You know, for, for six books of the Bible, we're going to talk politics. Why does it matter what David was like? It mattered much more to them than, than what, what it matters to us about what uh, Barack Obama is like. And look at how ex- excited people got about Barack Obama when he was running for office. Why does it matter so much for them? Think back to the history of Israel. Israel was a pretty hopeless group of people. It always depended on them having a, a leader to be an intermediary between them and God, a leader who could take them out of trouble, bring them into safety, bring them politically and spiritually, take them out of trouble and bring them into safety. Because while they faced a lot of political trouble in their lives, the greater problem they faced was their relationship with God. I mean, the Egyptians may enslave them, but God could kill them. So they depended on their leaders to save their life. First, there was Moses. Moses saved them as a nation. They depended on Joshua. And then Joshua dies. And they've got this odd group of judges who would every so often step up and deliver them. And some of them were pretty twisted. But then they got Samuel to deliver them. And then they get kings. And Saul started out good. But he ended up twisted. Now why is it so important to First Samuel to spend 16 chapters defending David? One of the reasons is because the future of Israel depended on David leading them back to God, keeping them close to God. And if he's not faithful to God, how can he lead them in? If he's an insurrectionist, if he is an assassin, if he's a traitor, how can he be trusted to bring Israel to God? He's just duplicitous. And so 1 Samuel 16 to 31 defends David from all these insinuations that would be obvious about his character, given his circumstances. Now, what I want to take you to is a quick summary of the next 16 chapters, real quick summary, and then talk about the practical implications of all of this for politics today, and broader than politics. Chapter 15. 
in 1 Samuel. God tells Samuel to go to battle, destroy all the enemy's possessions and the enemy. Don't take any of it. Saul decided he wanted actually to keep it, and his, his soldiers wanted to keep some of this money. And so David said, okay, that's the end. You're not going to be king anymore. You rejected me, I've rejected you. So what's the point of chapter 15? David doesn't become king because David usurps Saul's power. David becomes king because God turned his back on Saul. Chapter 16, God chooses David and Samuel anoints him quietly, privately. But you've got one king designate anointed and you've got another king serving already. Why did David become king? Not because he usurped power, but because God called Samuel the prophet to anoint him. The same person who anointed Saul. Chapter 16, the second half. As David is anointed, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, departs from Saul. An evil spirit takes up residence in Saul. And Saul brings David into the court to play the harp and calm him down when he's going paranoid. Chapter 17. Saul and his whole army are out in the field facing the Philistines. The famous story. The Philistines say, raise up a hero, and they say, you send one of your men out to fight, fight our man, and whoever's man wins, that side wins. And their hero was Goliath. And Saul and all of his men are trembling. David didn't usurp Saul's position. Saul wasn't worthy of his position. He can't even lead his men into battle. He can't stand up to Goliath and fight. So David, the teenager, stands up to Goliath and wins the battle. Chapter 18, word spreads about what great thing, great, what great battle David had won. And people are chanting, Saul's killed thousands, but David kills ten thousands. And Saul gets jealous. And he tries to kill David. And when he can't kill David, get this women, he marries his daughter off to David so that he can control David through his wife. His daughter, his wife, David's wife. If he can't kill him, he'll control him. Chapter 19. Saul tries to kill David two more times. It doesn't succeed because, first of all, Saul's son protects David. And secondly, Saul's daughter defends David. So Saul can't get his own children to try and kill David. Do you see how the author is defending David? David didn't usurp Saul's position. Even Saul's own children favored David over themselves, over their father's lineage. Chapter 20. David can't stand the pressure anymore. He's afraid of being killed. He runs away. Looks duplicitous? No, because it was Jonathan, Saul's son, who helped him escape and warned him to escape. And David flees without food, without water, without safety. Chapter 22. In Vive oh, David stops off, because he's got no food or water or safety, David stops off in his route, and he stops and gets bread from a priest. And the priest doesn't know what's going on. The priest is not in the city, he's in the countryside. He doesn't know anything about what's going on. But David got some bread from him and kept going. Saul hears that this priest gave bread to David. So Saul comes in with his men and kills not just that priest, but 85 priests. David didn't usurp Saul's position. Saul forfeited it through brutality, through massacring the priests. Chapter 23. 
David saves a city. A city was captured by the enemy. David rides in and saves it. And then he prays to God and says, if I stay in this city, will they give me up to Saul? God tells him, yes, you better run. So David saves the city. And then he still has to flee. He's not a usurper. Saul tries again in chapter 23 to kill David. And then Samuel rescues David, and God rescues David. Saul comes to kill David, but the spirit falls on Saul, and Saul starts prophesying. He can't do anything other than be a prophet. David gets away. Saul hunts David down in the passage we read today. David had a chance to kill him. Saul's exposed in the cave, relieving himself. David can creep up close enough to cut a piece off his robe and doesn't kill him. David is not a usurper, a renegade. Chapter 25. A rich man insults David. David decides to kill the butcher, the rich man. The rich man's wife runs out that night apologizing for her husband insulting David. And David relents and decides not to kill the man. God kills the man. David gets the wife, and and David is vindicated. Chapter 26, Saul again hunts down David. David again refuses to kill him, and then Saul repents. Chapter 27, David really does something suspect. He flees to the Philistines for protection. And it looks like he's rebelled, but he doesn't kill Israelites in war. He goes to war, but he goes, against, goes to war against the Philistines' allies discreetly. He denied what he was doing, but he went and killed their allies rather than killing Israelites. Again, David is defended. Chapter 28 and 29. God turns from Saul. David didn't usurp Saul's position. God turned from Saul. The Philistines went to war against Saul. And David joined with the Philistines to go to war against Saul. But as they got closer, the Philistine commander said, we can't trust David and his men. They're Israelites. And sent him away. So when Saul and his sons died, David wasn't even there. He wasn't even trusted to be there. The Philistines killed Saul. They killed David's kids. And Saul's kids. And that's where the story takes us. Chapter 31. Saul and his three sons have been killed, defeated by the Philistines. The whole point of these 16 or 17 chapters is this. David is not a usurper. David did not overthrow God's anointed. God overthrew a paranoid Saul. Saul's own family supported David. It was God who chose David to be king. Why this matters For the next couple of centuries, Israel is going to have kings rise up and fall, rise up and fall, and there's going to be a huge amount of court intrigue. Kings are going to kill their children. Children are going to kill their fathers who are kings. Brothers are going to kill brothers. There's going to be constant political chaos in Israel. And God and Samuel and the narrator want to be able to turn their eyes back to a time when God's king was mostly, not entirely we know, but mostly God's king was righteous. And God blessed his people. 
as a hope for the future, as a promise that if God's people will be righteous again, if God's leader will lead his people in righteousness again, then God will be with his people again. What does any of this have to say to us? Let me draw out at least two, maybe five lessons in quick order. First of all, in the most general categories, this tells us that politics has religious significance. Was Palm Sunday, or is 1 Samuel 16, chapter 16 to 31, is this political or is it religious, spiritual? Politics has interface with religious dimensions. There's more going on here than political intrigue. And it tells us also that religion has political implications. This is the Bible. And it spends, I mean, the religious book of all religious books for us as Christians. And yet it spends 8 or 15 chapters on Saul, depending on how you count them. Uh, 16 or 17 on David, supplanting Saul. It talks about Saul becoming king, and that's a religious issue. And it talks about David supplanting Saul, and that's a religious issue. Politics is religious, and, and religion is political. If you've got any question about that, read the current literature, the news stories, about the legislation that was passed recently in Indiana, and the ramifications of that. Is it a political issue, or is it a religious issue? Yeah, it's going to be both in our world. Secondly, from the broadest category, politics is religion, is religious, and religion has political dimensions. From the more specific, some of you would have seen the book about Bonhoeffer. I don't know if it's been made into a movie yet. I don't follow movies. I read books. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many of you would know at least the, out, from the, the rough outline of the story. Two weeks before the Nazi regime fell, and three weeks before Hitler was before Hitler killed himself, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was um, was was killed, was hanged in a prisoner camp for having participated in a plot against Hitler. Now, Bonhoeffer wasn't just a plotter; it wasn't a political act for him. Bonhoeffer was a leader of a wing of the German Church at the time. He was guilty of participating in a plot against Hitler. His biggest regret was that the plot failed. And he's a church leader, a top church leader. Politics has religious overtones and religion it can be political. Now, Bonhoeffer gave his life to overthrow a corrupt dictator. Now, as Hitler was, was certainly no Saul. For Saul, it was personal ambition versus David. Saul was not the corrupt, evil man that Hitler was. But this raises a sort of question that Bonhoeffer had to struggle with. As a Christian leader, can I kill a politician? This is serious. On a more pedestrian level, it relates to us. You know, what stance do we take? Well, how about now? 
You know, the current brouhaha over Hillary Clinton's emails and what implications it may raise for her running for presidential office. Or much bigger issues. You know, when Clinton was being impeached, do you know that in the impeachment trial in the Congress for, for uh, Clinton, that almost everybody voted along party lines? Now, there were only two questions. Did he break the law? And was the violation of law sufficient that he should be removed from the presidency? And somehow those questions were not approached as moral questions or civil questions or religious questions. They were approached purely along political lines. Uh, there were five senators who broke with their party. These are important, legitimate questions to ask. From a Christian perspective, it's important for us to engage with these questions. A fourth possible application. Sometimes, oddly enough, this passage is used to defend pastors. You know, David said, Far be it for me to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed, and David wouldn't kill Saul. And so some really conservative pastors will say, Whatever I do that you don't like, or whatever I do wrong, it's not your place to touch the Lord's anointed. Only God can bring down the Lord's anointed. Well, I've heard, I've been in a church where that argument was used. Well, pastors aren't the Lord's anointed. And we're not kings. It can't be used in that regard. A fifth point I would draw from this, and the final one. It takes us back, or forward, to Jesus. And Palm Sunday. Remember what Jesus' central message was? what we call, what we usually say, the, reign, the kingdom of God. Scholars will tell you, no, 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 it should be the reign of God. What was Jesus' central message? God is coming back to his world. As in the days of Eden, God is coming back to his world, and he's going to reign. And if God is coming back to reign through the ministry of Jesus, what does that say about Jesus? It tells us that he is the king who's going to reign on God's behalf. And if nothing else about politics interests us, let this grip our hearts. That Palm Sunday is about Jesus coming to reign on God's behalf in a broken world. But as he comes to reign on God's behalf in a broken world, he changes the definition of what it means to be king. He changes the entire definition of what it means to reign. Because they were right when they had him on a donkey and they put branches before him and they sang praise to the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were right, more right than they realized because he was coming as king. But this king did not come to kill his opponents. He did not come to exercise power. He came to die for his enemies. He came to be what Israel hoped to find in David and didn't. He came to be what they could never find in Saul. What Solomon couldn't be. What Barack Obama, what George Bush, what Jeb Bush, what Hillary Clinton. He came to be what none of these people will ever be for us. And it does 
have political dimensions. He came to reign over our lives. He came to rule in us and in our world as the servant who died, not as the king who inflicts others. He is a king without corruption. He is a king who does not demand to be first. He is a king who does not ask his subjects to die for him, but dies for them. He is a king who redefines the entire notion of what political power is. And he is a king who will reign over earth until all of this earth celebrates him as king. Let's pray together. Jesus, we would honor you as our king. And we would ask you to be at work in our lives, that our political lives might honor you as king, not just our spiritual lives. We honor you, Jesus. Amen.